You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. When the cold, I moved here in 2005. It was Labor Day weekend, and my parents had traveled with us to help drive the moving truck here. And so we dropped the moving truck off after we had unpacked it, and we took my parents to the airport, and they flew back to Virginia. And after they had gotten on the plane and we were driving away from the airport, we stopped at Hardee's uh, to get breakfast, and Nicole and I. And in Virginia, Hardee's was known for how good their sweet tea is. And so when we got to Hardee's uh, that morning, I asked for a biscuit and a sweet tea, and the lady said, we don't have sweet tea. And I thought, where have I moved into this, this godforsaken place? They don't have sweet tea. Hardee's doesn't even have sweet tea. Um, and since then, over these last several years, I found that there are many places here in the Midwest that they have sweet tea, but it's not what I would call sweet tea. Because my grandmother, who grew up in North Carolina, when she made sweet tea, um, the amount of sugar that she would put in that was probably just really grossly irresponsible, the amount of sugar that she put in it. And so I'd grown up on that, and when she would have the family over, she would typically make two gallon pitchers of this sweet tea, and we would drink it down and loved it. And there are times that people say, yeah, I've got some sweet tea, and what they mean is, I just I put a little sugar in it, right? There's just a little bit. That's not, that's, not what I'm, that's not what I'm after, all right? That feels very weak and deluded to me. John chapter 7 is all about Jesus for who He is and His genuine nature and not being watered down or deluded at all. In John chapter 6, we saw that many people turned and walked away from Jesus because of the strength of his teaching. It was an offense to them. They couldn't handle it. And what we're going to see in John chapter 7 is that Jesus receives some pressure to maybe water it down a little bit so that more people can be accepting of it. And Jesus refuses to bring any dilution, any softening, any watering down of his truth and who he is. So look at John chapter 7 and verse 1. With me. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. What are the, these things? It's all of those disciples hearing the tough message and walking away. For he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. So he wasn't staying in Judea, but rather he was in Galilee. Because of the strength of his message, many people walked away and others wanted to take his life. And so Jesus kind of goes into the backwoods of Galilee, he kind of goes into the obscurity there. Verse 2 says, now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. And just based on the fact that Jesus was at the previous feast and now he's at this one, we can, we can place about six months of time passing here between John 6 and John 7. So six months of Jesus being in Galilee, ministering to his disciples, ministering to people, but kind of off the grid, kind of out of the picture from the main spotlight. And now the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the third biggest feast in the Jewish culture, is coming up. And people start to tell him, well, are you going to go back to Jerusalem? Verse 3, 
His brethren therefore said. Now, a lot of times we use the word brother in church context and we refer to someone who's a brother in Christ. This is his literal brothers, his family. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brothers believe in him. Now remember, Jesus has told the people, you're just coming to me because you want me to feed you. You want me to do signs and miracles that help you. But that is not my purpose. It's not the reason I came. Now his brothers are saying, listen, if you want people to really follow you, you can't just hang out back in the woods. You've got to go to the big city. You've got to go to where the spotlight is, and you need to go and show those people your miracles if people are really going to believe in who you are. And the reason they're saying this is because Jesus' own brothers didn't believe. Now there's a really important distinction that I want to make here, okay? Because his brothers are telling him to go to Jerusalem and perform miracles. So they apparently believe that he has the power to perform miracles and signs. They believe that Jesus could do some pretty amazing stuff. Most likely they had seen him perform some of these miracles, perhaps at the wedding feast. And so they knew that Jesus, there was something special about Jesus. There was something powerful about Jesus. But they didn't believe in Jesus. So what does that mean? What it means is it's possible for us to believe that Jesus is a good man, for us to believe that Jesus is powerful, for us to believe that Jesus is noble without believing in Jesus. Because believing in Jesus means believing that He is the Messiah, the Son of God. These brothers of His, they believe that He could do some miracles, but they did not believe that He was the Son of God. And they're saying, listen, if you want people to accept you, you're going to have to go and give them a show. You're going to have to go to Jerusalem and do some pretty powerful stuff. And they had some ideas on how he could accomplish it. They had some ideas on how he could go and accomplish more things. And, and, and by the way, how tempting must it have been for Jesus to say, I'll show you. I mean, especially when it's your own brother, right? I mean, when someone dares you to do something, it's one thing. But when your own brother dares you, like, I'll show you. I ain't, I ain't scared. I'm not chicken. I'll, I'll do it. Watch me. But Jesus doesn't give in to this. When his own brothers doubt him, when his own family questions him, he does not give in to that pressure. So Jesus is very clear on his mission. He's very clear on who he is, what he's here for, what he's to accomplish, and it's not what everybody else thinks he needs to accomplish. And so look how he responds to them in verses 6 and 7. Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. 
What Jesus is saying here is, my time hasn't come, but your time is always here. And what does that mean? That means when you're just going with the flow, the, the timing doesn't matter. When you're just, hey, whatever comes, comes. It's time to go to the feast. We'll go to the feast. When you're just living, going along with the flow of culture, it doesn't matter what the timing is. And so Jesus says to his brothers, the timing for you, it always is. It's always the right time to do whatever. Whatever the culture is doing, you'll do. People are going to the feast, you'll go to the feast. But my time hasn't come. You can see, Jesus wasn't just going with the flow of culture. Jesus was following the call that his Father had placed upon him. He was following the purpose and mission for him. Now, sometimes we refer to going with the flow, and what we mean is following the Spirit's leading. Following where God is leading us. But we need to be clear that there's a difference. There's a difference between following the leading of the Spirit, going with the flow of what God is leading us to, and just going with the flow of what everybody else is doing. It's a big difference. Jesus says, listen, the time's always right for you because you're just going with what everybody else thinks. And you're encouraging me to just go along with what everybody else thinks. But my time has not yet come. And then he says, the world doesn't hate you, but it hates me. Why doesn't the world hate his brothers? Because they're just going along with the flow. You want to stand out? Do what God says and not what culture does. You want to stick out? Do what God calls you to do. Obey His commands. Live your life in accordance with His Word and not with what is culturally appropriate or normal. Jesus says they're not going to hate you because you're doing the exact same things as them. You're just like them. But I'm different. I've got a different purpose. I've got a different calling. And because I am different, the world hates me. Because I'm different, I give a contrast between where they are and where I should be. And so Jesus, by His very presence and His obedience to the Father, was a source of conviction and condemnation on the people. So Jesus is the contrast to our evil. And the more time we spend looking at Jesus, the more we realize how drastically we we fall short of Him. I mean, if you're feeling pretty good about yourself, like you got things figured out, just take some time reading the Gospels and seeing how Jesus lived his life. How obedient he was to the Father's calling. You'll recognize that there's some work that needs to be done in me. There, there's some things that God is calling out in me. And so his brothers want him to kind of water this down and to become what the culture expects. And he says, no, that is not why I'm here. That is not my purpose. And if Jesus had submitted to this pressure... And if Jesus had just been the person that everybody else wanted him to be, he would not have been true to his calling, his nature. Do you remember why John told us that he wrote this book? John tells us in John 20, 31, the purpose statement of this book, these things I have written that you might believe, not just in Jesus, but that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I've written these things that you might believe. Not just that Jesus is a good man, not just that he is a teacher, but that he is the genuine artifact. He is the true Son of God. He's the Messiah. He is who he says that he is. So John didn't write a book so we could believe that there was a Jesus. Rather, John wrote a book so that we could believe that Jesus truly is the Messiah, God's Son. And one of the most convincing 
truths after the resurrection is that in your New Testament, in your Bible, there is the book of James. And the book of James is written by Jesus' brother. One of these brothers who doesn't believe in Jesus. One of these brothers who is not convinced that Jesus is the Son of God. Yeah, he's, he's special. Yeah, he's powerful. Yeah, he can do some pretty incredible stuff. But he's not the Messiah, right? Kind of like you feel about your brother, right? Like, I mean, I guess he's okay, but he's not, he's not all that great. He's not as big a deal as mom makes him out to be. So James was skeptical. But something changes James. And he becomes a follower of Jesus, believing that Jesus is the Son of God, becomes a leader in the church, writes one of the books of our Bible. Why? Because he saw Jesus die and then raise from the dead. And that was convincing to him that Jesus truly is the Christ, the Son of God. So when John writes this book, he doesn't want us to see Jesus as a good man or Jesus as someone who was just unappreciated in his time or that Jesus was a prophet or that he was a martyr. Rather, that Jesus is the Son of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And James would become a genuine disciple of Jesus when he came to believe that. You know, it's interesting that that the brothers, they say, you need to go to Jerusalem so your disciples can see your works. You, you need to go and show your disciples that you're legit, that you're genuine, that you're real. And if Jesus had caved to that pressure, he would have been somebody other than who God called him to be. And then his disciples would not have been genuine. But because Jesus remained true to himself and his calling and his mission and his purpose, because he remained genuine to what God wanted for him, James was then converted to that. You see, here's the temptation we face. We face the temptation that the message of Jesus is too strong, that it is too drastic, that it is too hard. And if we're going to reach more people, if there are going to be more disciples, we must water down the message. We must more, add more water to the tea. We must add more water to the stew. We must pour in more broth. We've got to water it down so that it can spread. But all that does is leave us with a watered-down, powerless Christianity that doesn't make a difference in anybody's life. That wouldn't have made a difference in James' life. What made a difference in James' life is the genuine, real-deal Jesus. And see, there are no genuine disciples without a genuine Jesus. And so Jesus is true to Himself here. Because He is true to Himself and who God has called Him to be, He does not cave to this pressure. He remains genuine. And then his own brother, who doubted him, becomes a genuine follower of Jesus. You know what the truth is? I don't like tea. I like sugar. I mean, that's, that's really what it's about. When they're like, oh, we only have unsweetened tea, I'm like, I'll have a Coke. Right? I, I'm not in love with tea. I like sugar. And tea is just a delivery system for the sugar that I want. If we change up Jesus to attract more people, we won't attract them to Jesus. We'll just attract them to the changes we made. We'll just, we'll just attract them to the, the sweetener we put in, to the sugar we added, to the compromises we made. It'll come to a point where Jesus is not even in the picture anymore. It's just the sugar. Jim Gaffney's got this bit about the only way you can get people to eat granola is to put chocolate chips in it. 
And people still won't eat the granola. So the only way to get people to eat granola is to put chocolate chips in and then put chocolate over it. The only way to get people to eat the granola bar is to put chocolate chips in it and chocolate over it and chocolate under it. And he says, you know, we should just get rid of the granola. And that's what we do. If people are going to come, they're going to follow Jesus. We, we need to add this, we need to add this, we need to add this, and eventually we come to a place that all the things that we're here for, all the things that we're following, Jesus isn't even essential to it. So we might as well remove him from the picture. Jesus, I didn't come to do miracles for you. I didn't come to, to, to perform for you. I came to be who my Father has called me to be. And your time might be now. And you might go with the flow. But I am following a calling. I'm here for a purpose. I'm here for a reason. That's why I'm here. You know, a few weeks ago, I joked about um, developing an allergy to country music because I lived in Nashville when I was a boy. And since then, our musicians have joked with me a couple times, like through rehearsal, like, that, that wasn't too country for you, was it, Pastor Daniel? No. Um, you know, uh, several years ago, my cousin got married, and he, he lived in Fort Gibson, Oklahoma. Fort Gibson, Oklahoma is right next to Muskogee, Oklahoma. Muskogee is exactly what you would picture when hearing the word Muskogee. We went to a diner one of the mornings we were there, and I sat under a huge portrait of Merle Haggard because Merle Haggard is the Okie from Muskogee. <laughs> we went to church that morning, and the guy who taught Sunday school, this is not an exaggeration, he was wearing his Sunday overalls. <laughs> he, he had overalls that he worked his farm in, and then he had nice overalls that he wore to church. And he had one of those red hankies that was the Sunday hanky. I don't own overalls, all right? I don't own a Friday pair or a Sunday pair. You know what? I loved that Sunday. Because those people weren't there for overalls. They were there for Jesus. That's what they were there for. They were there to worship Jesus. And, and, if, and if church becomes about our brand, our style, our flavor, our culture, and it's not about Jesus, there's no use in that. There's no power in that. Whether it's overalls or guitars, whatever, the power's in Jesus. That's where it's at. And anything else that we add to try to, well, if we add these things, if we do these things, it's about Jesus. It's about Him. So Jesus has, has said, you guys go on to the feast, but then Jesus goes to the feast later, but in kind of a clandestine way. He goes up and he teaches in the synagogue, and there's a whole bunch in the middle of this chapter about Jesus teaching in the synagogue during this Feast of Booths. But I want us to skip all the way to verse 37, because there's some really powerful words in verse 37. But before we read that, let me give you a little bit of context on this feast that Jesus is attending, okay? This is the Feast of Booths. And the Feast of Booths, the people would literally, they would come in from the countryside to Jerusalem, and they would build little shacks in the streets. The people who lived in Jerusalem would build little shacks on their roof. Most of the houses had like kind of a, a roof patio. And so they would build these little booths or, or, or shanties or tents, and everybody would live in the shanty or tent for a whole week. Okay, And the reason they did that was to remember when their ancestors were going through the desert as God led them from Egypt into the Promised Land, they lived in tents. And their, their worship 
space, their worship gathering spot was a tabernacle, which was also a tent, so that it could be taken down, moved to the next campsite, set back up. They were nomadic for many, many years. And so the Feast of Booths is to remind them of the time that God provided for their ancestors as He took them through the desert and they lived in Booths. And now they're blessed to not only have homes and have wells and to have vineyards and to have a temple, but then they didn't. And so for the whole week, they go camping. And they camp out in the street and on the, on the roof to remember how God provided for their ancestors. And there are two really important elements that were added to them living in booths. The first is that every morning, the priest would go down to the spring of Siloam. And his picture looked a lot nicer than this one, which is the one that everybody's grandmother had, right? He had a, like a golden pitcher. He would go down to the spring of Siloam, and there are all these people following and gathering around, and he would dip it down into the pool, and he would fill it up. And he would make his way back through Jerusalem, and there would be this processional, and all the people that were staying in booths up on their roofs, they would watch as the water was carried through the city. And as the priests got to the temple... They would blow a trumpet three times to celebrate that the water had arrived. And the trumpets would then cue a choir that would sing the psalms that are 113 to 118. And after all of the songs were done, every man that was present would stand and yell, Praise the Lord! Praise the Lord! Praise the Lord! And they would take that water and they would pour it into a basin And at the same time that they're pouring this water into a basin, they would take the wine offering that they did every morning, not just during the Feast of Booze, and they would pour it into a basin. And then after offering a prayer, they would take those two basins and they would pour them out as drink offerings to the Lord. And it was to remind the people that as God brought them through the desert, as He dwelt among them in a tent Himself, and they dwelt in tents, that in the middle of the desert, where there was no water to drink, God gave them water. Through a rock, through a spring, through an oasis, God constantly provided for their survival. And God not only provided for their survival and giving them the water that they needed, God gave them grace in abundance and gave them the wine, which was a blessing and a joy. And they poured those two things out in this powerful moment. Everybody singing and calling out praise to the Lord. And that's how they started every morning of the Feast of Booths. For an entire week, this parade through town with the water. And on the last day of this feast, where all of this is going on, I want you to see what Jesus says in verse 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Do you see what Jesus is doing all along the way here in the Gospel of John? 
as he meets with a woman who is there at a well drawing water. He says, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd ask me to give you water so you'd never thirst again. As people come to him and they want him to feed them bread, he says, I am the bread of life that if you eat, you will never hunger again. As the people are performing this ritual that is thanking God for providing them with water, something that you and I can have by just going to the water fountain and pushing a button or turning a spigot, we have it in our homes, something that they would have had to work hard to have. God provided for them in the desert. Jesus is saying, all the things you're searching for and all the things you're striving after, all the things you desperately need, I am them. Come to me, and you will have what it is that you are searching for. You will have what it is that you so desperately need. I am those things that you are looking for. And what the Scripture teaches us is that deep in the heart of every man and every woman, there is this God-sized, God-shaped hole that we can shove as much junk, as much stuff, as much money, as much sex, as much alcohol, as much drugs as we want, and we still feel empty. But if we drink of Jesus, we're no longer thirsty. And if we eat of the bread of life, we're no longer hungry. And when we come to Him, the thing that we have been searching for our entire lives is filled. The void is gone. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, not only is it no longer a bottomless pit, but out of His belly will flow rivers of living water. You know what happens when we come to Jesus and we experience how good He is? We experience His grace the bottomless pit goes from being something that constantly has to be fed, constantly needs, constantly needs to be something that overflows. Instead of constantly looking for something to shove in there to help us feel less empty, when Jesus fills that space in our hearts and lives, instead of needing something else to put in there, it's bubbling out of us. It's pouring out of us. And our heart goes from consumer to producer. Our heart goes from this thing that constantly needs to be poured in, constantly needs, constantly needs. Jesus is there and He has filled that and instead it's bubbling out because He has this infinite supply of love and grace and power and mercy and significance and meaning and it never runs dry. Come to me, any who thirsts, and let him drink, and out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. If we, if we positioned ourselves in this community to be a place that just constantly fed consumers, fed the needs, we, just, we would just always be short. There would never be enough of us to go around. There would never be enough generosity to meet all the needs. But if we can give people Jesus, the need in their heart turns from being this bottomless pit that is desperate for something to fill the void to being something that overflows. And we go from scarcity to abundance. From desert to a land flowing with milk and honey. Because Jesus has quenched our thirst and satisfied our hunger. The other part of the, the Festival of Booths 
was in front of the temple. They would take the old linens, the old clothing that the priests would wear, and they would fashion them in these giant wicks around a rod or pole. And then they would take oil and pour it in a basin at the bottom of that pole, and all of those old clothes would kind of act as a wick, pulling the oil up into the clothes. And they would light that on fire. And so in front of the temple, there were these columns of flame, which provided light into the city throughout the feast. And in John chapter 7, Jesus says, If you thirst, come to me. In John chapter 8, where we'll be next week, on Friend Day, when hopefully your friend is here, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Not just for Jerusalem, not just for this city, not just for this festival, not just for this week. I am the light of the world. And a city set upon a hill cannot be hid. Jesus has all of the things that you are grasping after. I am. I am. Would you bow your heads with me for a moment for a word of prayer?